It's the Amadon Planet Podcast, episode 43. I am your host, Joel Amadon. Thank you for joining me on this never-ending quest to figure out how to teach better. Today on the podcast is another blast from my education past. It's my good friend and mentor, Dr. Alice Udvari-Solner. Alice is a national consultant in education and has held an appointment at the University of Wisconsin-Madison since 1989. During that time, she has prepared educators in undergraduate, master's, and Ph.D. degree programs to act as change agents in creating inclusive schools. And like I said, she's a blast from my education past. Um, I've known her longer than I knew Jude, Joe Dye, who was our last guest on the podcast. And I wanted to have Alice to come on and talk about her book, uh, Joyful Learning. It's a teaching strategy book that helps um, not only teachers to think creatively about their own teaching, but also to enact some of the inclusive um, mindsets, philosophies that we're going to talk about in the episode. Alice is an expert, an expert, an expert in inclusive education, and she has done a lot to think about how to make this happen in uh, in classrooms with teachers. And so, and I was one of them. I was a, a teacher in her undergraduate uh, classes, went to teach uh, fairly locally and had her come out to my classroom where she was able to point out things that I was doing well and able to help me figure out how to do things even better. Uh, had more interaction with her at a master's degree program and actually got to work with her uh, in my doctoral program. And so we have a lot of history, a lot of stuff to get into. This is a fairly long episode, but I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, in thinking about seriously, what is the definition of inclusive education, how to make it happen, and all in the mindset of how do we teach better. And so I think this is a great episode for anyone that's trying to understand inclusive education better or trying to make it happen within their uh, classrooms. And also, too, whenever you're trying to teach, trying to think, make things cooperative and engaging and active, Alice is an expert in that, and you're going to get a lot out of this um, conversation. But before I jump into the conversation with Alice, just a quick disclaimer. In no way will we be able to communicate the whole value of the book, which is Joyful Learning, Active and Collaborative Strategies for Inclusive Classrooms by Alice Udvari-Solner and Paula Kluth. We'll talk about Paula in the episode as well. Um, it's going to be from our perspective, and you know the drill. If you like what you hear, go get the book for yourself, especially if you're a um, K-12 educator or even, a, I mean, shoot, college educator too. Um you're going to like it. You're going to want it. So go purchase it for yourself. So links to purchase the book can be found at AmazonPlanet.com forward slash episode 43 or seek it out wherever you buy high quality books like this one. If possible, try to support your local bookseller like Square Books here in Oxford, Mississippi. Without further delay, here's my conversation with Alice Udvari-Solner. Alice, thank you so much for joining me on the Amazon Planet podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. It's wonderful to be here and to see you. Yeah, oh my, this is uh it's it's been too long. It has been with too long and you know, but uh there's a a lot of stuff going on right now, but uh you know what like I said in a little bit prior is these uh podcasts become a little bit of an excuse to have a conversation with the people I want to talk to. So this is great. So thank you again for joining me. Of course. So would you give a, a little bit of background on your history and education, a little bit of background and I mean, on uh, where you're at and uh, where, where, where you started and all that good stuff. Sure, sure. So um, I actually came to the University of Wisconsin-Madison when I was 17 years old. I had aspirations to become an anthropologist, uh, cultural anthropologist, in fact, <clears throat> 
started on that path and then realized I might not make a lot of money in this field and I might have to live in tents and eat peanut butter sandwiches. And so um, I took a course uh, as part of my undergraduate requirements that was called Exceptional Children. Mm. And along with that course came a service learning requirement. And I had the opportunity to work in a classroom um, serving students with very significant disabilities. And at the time, it was the mid-70s, uh, this was the first educational experience that any of those students had. And they were recently granted the opportunity to be educated because of the installment of the Education for All Handicapped Children's Act. Mm-hmm. And they had all been institutionalized in a local institution in the city limits of Madison. And so they had never experienced uh, any kind of education. And some of them were in their middle school years. And I absolutely fell in love with the experience. I fell in love with the students themselves. I I thought, these are my people. (laughs) Um, I I recognized that um, this, that they were the most interesting and um, forced me to be the most creative in my yeah. own thinking and my own teaching. And so I shifted and decided to become a special educator, uh, did so at UW, and then taught in the Madison schools with people that had probably the most significant disabilities um, in the city, and eventually went on for my master's and PhD at UW-Madison with the uh, intent of serving um, the communities of families and students with disabilities to advance inclusive education uh, because I started in the field when we were just trying to seek access to public schools for people with disabilities and um, wanted to be part of the movement to truly gain access to general education that is each student's civil right. And was able to do so. And um, eventually, um, I didn't intend to, but I was offered a position at UW-Madison that was joint between the regular education department or the general education department and uh, special education. And my job was to truly bridge the gap in teacher education that existed between those two disciplines. So my position actually allowed me to teach both general and special educators in common settings with the intent of having conversations and, uh, and work to prepare people to be inclusive educators, whether or not they were getting certified as special educators or general educators. Nice. And I guess, it, and we'll get into our background because that's, that's fun too to talk about. Yes. But even just to like define, because some people like when you say inclusive education, they have like a definition in mind, but like, can you define inclusive education just for, you know, even folks that might be listening that, you know, they've heard the term, but they don't quite know what it means, but give us that, that, you know, the Alice definition for it. (laughs) And, and, and that's a hard one because you are going to see in the field, many variations of Mm -hmm. what, 
is meant by inclusive education, and it has evolved over time. Mm -hmm. So the terminology really came out of the grassroots movement of families, um, educators, and administrators who were really had great forethought and advocacy to look at um, ways in which students with disabilities could take their rightful place in the context of general education. So the idea of inclusive practice is that um, we are bringing um, students with identified disabilities, uh, not only those students, but now any student who might have been marginalized or separated mm -hmm. from um, the general ed context, and bringing them into full membership into their school community. So that not only means being in general education, but that you are a general education student first. Right. And receiving specialized services doesn't identify you as anyone different. Um, you are not a special education student. Um, it doesn't negate your identity as a first grader or a second grader or a freshman, but in fact, you are a student um, with full rights and, and abilities uh, in a general education classroom. And the idea is that we bring specialized services to the student wherever possible into the context of general ed. So that's the way I kind of frame, yeah. no, no. Um, frame inclusive education. And now, of course, when we think about the word inclusivity and um, the um, the needs of students and how those have evolved and um, and changed over time, that we not only think about assuring students are full members of their school community um, and valued in that setting, uh, we go beyond thinking about students with disabilities, but in include any students who are English language learners or mm -hmm. emergent bilingual, multilingual, students who have experienced trauma, um, and students, again, who might have been separated or marginalized in any way. Yeah. And, and I, I, thank you for doing that, because I, I think um, I've, you hear words tossed around in education and I remember, you know, from my background, let's may as well just go into it. Like I started as an undergraduate in, I don't know, nine, uh, I don't even want to know, like maybe <laughs> two, 99, fall of 99, maybe. I think so. Or yeah. spring, no, it's maybe spring of 2000. Cause I think I was with Joe Dye cause that was the previous episode <laughs> and uh, <laughs> fall of 2000. So spring of 2000 probably was when we first, wow. Don't know when to do the math there, Alice, but it, <laughs> But the uh, having that first class, I think curriculum instruction 506 about in learning about what it means to be inclusive and think about some of the readings that we had and learning about that, you know, that what does actually, was it mean to have an inclusive classroom and thinking about some of the fragmented ideas about inclusive education. And then even the, the article that was most powerful, I still think about is that article from the students or from the students in a classroom's perspective of a student who was pulled out for services. I think it talks about this, that student is not a part of a class. They just come and go. I think is like something like the quote. I don't know yeah. if you know the exact title of the article. Yeah. So that was, that was a really um, poignant uh, study that was done by Roberta Schnorr out of uh, Syracuse University. 
and it was entitled Peter, He Comes and Goes. Mm, yes. And it was an ethnographic study that um, where she um, actually looked at how first graders construct their own identities. And there was a student with Down syndrome um, named Peter, Mm -hmm. And she spent time in this first grade classroom and talked with kids and teachers about what what makes the first grade experience, what makes you a first grader. And students shared things like, oh, well, we have our lockers here. We do lunch count at this time. At recess, this is our space where we go. Here we line up, et cetera. Um, these are the activities we do in school. This is what we're studying in math. And um, a student with Down, the student with Down syndrome was only mainstreamed on a partial basis into that class. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, she asked students, well, is Peter a first grader? And she got a resounding no from many mm -hmm. students. And one of the students' quotes was, Peter's not a first grader. Peter, he comes and goes. And the idea was that he wasn't truly a member of that school community because of his departures and entries and was perceived as somebody different, somebody other. And um, as you said, what was powerful for me in, in, in that study is how early children begin to develop their own identities as learners mm -hmm. and how they perceive others within that school world. And you think like, even just like from a, a kid's perspective, like, you know, to get services, I have to go away and get certain like, and, and then that led to this othering versus like, you know, if, if services, like you talked about in your definition of in inclusion, if services can be brought in and then it's like, well, that becomes a normal part of the classroom. Like, sometimes people need services. Sometimes, you know, like, and then maybe I need some services this year. Maybe next year I don't like there's, it's, it's like not, it's not going to um, make it a, a negative or an othering experience, right? It's just, oh, it's just something that happens, right? It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's a right. part of our part of what we do here, right? And and that then also translates to how we prepare our teachers to mm -hmm. function in those environments. Is that when um, when people have described um, what they have found as effective, inclusive classrooms and environments. Um, people will often say, parents, administrators, that when I walk in, I can't tell the difference between who is certified as the general educator and who is the special educator. But in fact, people have um, engaged in role release where they are have shared their expertise and people are engaging in the same work uh, and supporting students in um, in collaboration. So as you said, that idea of, of this becoming normalized, that all people at some point in their day or week need and can benefit from additional supports or specialized um, instructional strategies. So let's bring that in and make it available and accessible to all students, um, but in particular for those students that have been identified as having um, unique educational needs. Yeah. And so, and 
and so like having the, you know, that experience of being in your undergraduate class and then getting the extended experience of having a master's degree uh, with in the program where you had a class as well. And then ex- basically rekindling our relationship. And then for some reason, like it, there was something that led you to come out to my uh, classroom out in uh, Sauk Prairie and, you know, able to see some things that we were doing. And I, I just, I was reflecting back on that experience of thinking about the, things I learned from you to set up my classroom. And then, you know, and, and then also Sock Prairie also had pretty good about bringing services in and to, to students and providing resources for all students too, as well. So that it wasn't, you know, stigmatized, like, Hey, if you need resource, you go to the resource room and never, that was just an accepted practice. But um, there was a, a, a student or having that environment set in my class where, you know, services are brought in and things and, and then having that sort of normalized within the classroom that, you know, some people just need some help at times. And then we had a student that showed up to my class. And I think you had a, the opportunity to, to observe this class where a student didn't speak a language that anyone in the school spoke, like you know, very limited English. And it's like, okay, this kid needs some, some help. How are we going to provide it? And it actually happened that another student would help provide this. And he was like into technology and like was a sociable sort of suit. So he had these assets that would help. And the, the kid did have some sort of translating device with him. So they would sit side by side and became friends, even though they barely spoke this, you know, they, they didn't have any language like abilities besides the, what was on the, the little device between them. And they figured it out. And it's, and I think it's because of that environment that, you know, you helped me create to have this like, Hey, every, some people just need a little help every now and then they might need some help with math. They might need some help with communication. They might need some help with a, a visual impairment. Like there's, it's just, how do we normal? And, and that's how the world is. And why don't we see that within our classrooms as well? And so, I don't know, it's just, it was, uh, I, I in reflecting and for this podcast, I was just thinking like, you know what, Alice means a lot <laughs> to me in my professional oh. development. So I just, it's a, uh, it's good to have this uh, conversation. Well, and I say that, you know, vice versa, because um, I have only learned what I've learned from my interactions with teachers who are mm-hmm. willing to kind of push the limits, um, question their own practice, um, be vulnerable about not necessarily knowing what to do immediately, but willing to try through trial and error as to what, what would work uh, for a student. And, um, you know, I, I have to um, shout your accolades because I, why did I want to visit your classroom? Because I knew that you were a brilliant and creative teacher in mathematics and that you had one of the unique things that you had done is that you had paid attention to building a community and building a sense of safety for students as the foundation for any of their learning. And that's part and parcel of creating an inclusive environment is that we can't just plop people together and assume that these relationships will um, take place or that students will naturally be able to um, access, you know, what might be very difficult content for them. But instead, we create an environment where um, it is, as you said, normalized to interact with, with peers who might be more skilled at something, where it is sanctioned that students work together and, and share their expertise, um, and that you also look for ways for all students to be um, expert 
and um, credible in the classroom. So people's um, self-esteem and willingness to to try was um, was set at the very beginning of of the work that you did. I think on a yearly basis. At least that's what I observed. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Yeah. No, I, and I think that too is like you, you planted those seeds of you know like now in my classrooms like you know, the best way for me to teach teachers how to teach is to let them teach and see them and coach them along. And like you turned over a lot of your, your classroom to the pre-service teachers that are learning how to do this, to give them a chance to try and, and, and put things out there. And it kind of that same sort of thing where you can point out examples and, and say like, I like, you know, there's seen some things here that connect to, you know, what we're trying to promote here or like, and then bringing in those examples from the classrooms where you would go and where these teachers are pushing the envelope on what's possible. Cause it all starts off with this idea about, well, why not? If this is what's best for the student, Let's try something. Let's, you know, versus, you know, we, we know that other path and it leads to a more restrictive uh, experience, a, 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 an othering experience for the students. Why don't we try something and we'll see. And it's like amazing, these amazing things happen. And so it's, and, and why can't we continue to do that? So that's yeah. some good stuff. Um, well, I did want to talk to you about the book, Joyful Learning. And um, it's something that I've, I've used a lot. My, uh, my first edition has lots of, uh, of notes and post-its in it, and it's in, already in a second edition. And so maybe if you could just give a little bit of background on the book, Joyful Learning, Active and Collaborative Strategies for Inclusive Classrooms. Absolutely. Um, and I think you had sent me um, a question that really made me think, um, like, how did this book come to be? And I started thinking, well, in a way, it kind of has two origin stories <laughs> in terms of why, why um, Paula Cluth and I ever wrote it in the first place. But <clears throat> it does go back to the beginning of my professional career at uh, UW-Madison in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction. And I needed to establish a research agenda and I wanted that to be truly related to my passion and commitment to work alongside families, teachers, and administrators to do systems change in inclusive education. And um, I had to look back at, um, at my work and kind of what was a driving question for me um, that actually it has maintained as my um, primary essential question that's driven my work. But I wrote it down one evening, and so I, I, I pulled it out and I looked at it here, and I realized that this is, this is really what my interest was and um, what I wanted to pursue in my work with um, teacher preparation. Um, and uh, the question was, how do we as educators create teaching and learning experiences that challenge and engage our students promote access and understanding, maximize meaningful acquisition of content, are culturally sustaining and congruent with our students' learning profiles, and actually promote intellectual and interpersonal growth in our teaching relationships. And that's like a huge tall order. That's what teachers are doing every day in yeah. their classroom. And I wanted to walk alongside people, and when I tried to distill that down as to what it meant, I really recognized that it, it was, it translated to sort of a lifelong examination as to how we universally design and differentiate 
assessment, curriculum, and instruction? How do we make our teaching practices congruent and supportive of those students who challenge us the most? And to me, this has been a fascinating question. I don't think it's answered yet, um, but I felt like I needed to embark on um, the work to find out. And so I applied for a federal research grant early in my career because we were supposed to. That's what you do, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> newly, you know, tenured track assistant professors. And I was, I received one in the early 90s. And the federal governments at that time actually had a priority to develop innovative approaches to supporting students with significant disabilities in general ed. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. That, that's, that's you. That, yeah, yeah. That's it. And so what it did in the design of, of the research and the outcomes is it actually allowed me to document some, the positive practices that teams, were all, teams of teachers were already engaged in, but then also to be witness to them grappling with the problems of practice in this area. Um, some teachers were veteran to this um, to inclusive practice. They had been teaching in diverse classrooms for many years. We needed to learn from those teachers uh, and ask, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And what do you call that? <laughs> um, and then let's write it down because yeah. other people need to know it. Um, along um, with those, no those veteran teachers were also novice teachers. It's like, this is the first time I have ever had somebody with a more significant disability in my class. And I'm a little scared. You know, no. I, I, I don't really know what the first steps yeah, yeah. are. And, um, and so as we engaged in that work, in exchanging and, and interchanging practice, um, we began to document those things. And our data consistently showed that when general and special educators came together and they attempted to co-design and then co-deliver uh, instruction with carefully planned activities that really leaned toward more active and collaborative approaches, um, students with disabilities as well as their non-disabled counterparts gained greater access, had greater engagement, in, in the work of learning. Mm -hmm. um, and so not only did it promote students learning side by side with their non-disabled peers, but their learning actually became interactive and reciprocal, just like what you described with the student that you had that was not speaking anybody else's language. Mm -hmm. um, by orchestrating and engineering those interactions, and learning that was active and collaborative, those interactive relationships um, blossomed and, and were facilitated. Um, since then, you know, I've spent time in, I was trying to calculate, it has to be hundreds of classrooms uh, with practicing and pre-service teachers. And I've just tried to continue on that journey to, to advance responsive teaching approaches not only for students with disabilities, but now those students that we talked about who are emergent bilingual from diverse cultural backgrounds and students experiencing trauma and students who are really ready for the next level of challenge. Um, students who might have been given labels of gifts and talents uh, also need um, ways to differentiate curriculum so that they are um, on the edge of their own learning. 
So joyful, that was a long explanation, but joyful learning was really a natural outcome uh, mm-hmm. of that work to try to capture and document at least some of those innovative approaches that teachers were already engaged in, but that we also as authors had a hand in helping design. So, Which is cool. Like thinking about like the documenting and, you know, sharing the brilliance of teachers. Like that's, that's pretty cool. Like, and, and, and how, you know, being that partner side by side versus, you know, some other folks in similar sort of positions, be like I have the answer and I'm going to go deliver it to everybody versus like, no, no, there's answers out there. And how do we help, you know, sh- you know, put them together and make sure that they get out to people. So, yes, I, I feel that the, authors of Joyful Learning uh, are all of those teachers. And in fact, we tried to, um, in the book, honor those where we highlighted some of the strategies um, who, uh, the strategies that were generated by um, some of the teachers and, and within districts where we had worked. Um, because again, people were doing that grassroots problem solving and really pushing their own creativity and the catalyst for that creativity were those students that were the most challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what an asset, you know, you think like what yeah. you think about it, like what and to those kids too, that's bringing out this, uh, this great work. And I think about like right. that almost, um, you know, calling that you listed out before and thinking about then where does this book sit? I think it's like, it's, it's like, this is a, is, you know, a, is um, close to, like you said, it's not quite the answer, you know, you, like the answer is still being developed, but I think this is a pretty good response, right? You know, like oh. to think like if people are going to look at this book and think like there's a philosophy behind it, but it's leading to like, there's some actions I can take. And so it's almost like if I have the philosophy and I'm want to think like, well, what it would look like in practice versus, you know, maybe I don't quite have the flight, but if I take these practices, I'll start trying to start getting that, what that thinking is behind it. Like, oh, that if I want to make sure everyone can participate in this thing. So now like, I'm, I'm more thinking in that way that you're, you're talking about. And I'm, mm-hmm. I get to notice who kids are and what their assets are and how can I leverage them and how can I challenge them? And so it's a, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. So. And that just brought to mind um, what I saw teachers doing in the field. And then we were kind of, you know, walking that same path with them in the problem solving is that, it was, we recognized up front and teachers, teachers in practice did too, that when we were used, you know, in habitual teaching patterns uh, that were, um, you know, really based on large group whole class uh, frameworks or uh, teacher um, led frameworks where uh, it might be the teacher demonstrating and then the students are expected to function independently after they've synthesized the the, the modeling of the teacher, um, large group question and answer, which many people do, um, rely on as a way of structuring their classes, uh, particularly at the secondary level. Well, those are the structures where students with unique learning needs struggle the most, mm-hmm. um, that many don't have the skills to be independent once information is conveyed to them or hearing it once from the teacher uh, or seeing it demonstrated once from, you know, somebody within the classroom is not enough for them to engage and understand or, or also show their knowledge. And so what the, 
the reason why I have focused in on um, trying to document those uh, more creative, active, and collaborative learning strategies is that they disrupt those habitual teaching patterns. Mm -hmm. And they force us to think about how students are going to be synchronously engaged together uh, versus something where I'm, you know, like banking education, where I'm the one with all the knowledge and right. I'm going to convey that to you. Now you do something with it and then, uh, you know, parrot it back to me to show me what you know. Um, these strategies um, actually really try to um, give us alternatives and also provide methods for students to have agency in their own learning. Um, so again, widening the opportunities for access. So maybe, uh, and so again, th and this is not designed to be read like a, uh, like a novel from front to back cover. It's no, <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of different, uh, again, strategies and again, dog-eared copies and, and post-its all over the place in most of these books. Cause like, these are things that I could see. I want to try in my classroom. Um, let's just use one. And this is one of my favorites uh, okay. just to talk through just so people can get a flavor of it. Can we talk through stand and deliver? Yes. I think it's one of the, I mean, I, if any of my students are out there like, oh, he's going to talk about stand and deliver. And it's, <laughs> it's one of my favorites because I think of how like you can do it almost at any time. And like I've, we've come up with some modification. We call, we have hand and deliver for you doing it on Zoom. <laughs> so yeah. uh, we've come up with some modifications already. But could you walk through stand and deliver? Sure. So, uh, again, as as I described this, people may also uh, do a variation of this already in their practice. They may have uh, learned about a strategy like this under a different name. Um, you know, sometimes I, I like to remind us that no thought is original, you That's know, right. that, that, that we're all building off of each other. Yeah, but yeah. this was, um, this was a strategy that, um, Paula, my co-author and I, um, wanted to document as an alternative to what we might do in large group whole class question and answer. Because when we think about that traditional structure, the teacher asks a question, mm -hmm. and then likely, you know, a few students will come forward, raise their hand, and offer an answer. And the Almost pattern, immediately, too. Like almost if it, yeah. immediately, right? Mm -hmm. And typically what we find out is those will be the same students. Uh, time and time again, they are the most gregarious people in the classroom, the people who are the risk takers, the mm. people who who are maybe the most opinionated, the mm. people who want to be heard, right? Mm. And those are fantastic characteristics of, of, of learners. But oftentimes, it results in only hearing a few voices mm -hmm. in the classroom. And then you have absolutely no data in terms of what other people are understanding. So stand and deliver requires you to engage the whole class. Actually, it as a result, you can get 100% participation. So um, just it, asking um, students a key question where there might be many multiple right answers. I think if there's only one right answer, this isn't the right strategy. But if there are multiple right answers or opinions or um, statements that can be made, this is a great structure. Um, I'd use this question to, to demonstrate. This is a question I'll use. And it's one that it, yeah. the answer to the it's like, how in your head add up 16 and 25, okay? And then describe 
and think about how you did it. So that that's the one that everyone, most in the audience can do. But that would be a prompt. That'd be a sample prompt that you could use. Or I mean, there's any other yeah. prompt, like open-ended and what, and what students need to convey then is how they came to that solution, right? Right. Yeah. And even to say, like, everyone knows, like, even to put on the, the answer is this. I don't care about the, it's not about the answer. It's about how do we get to the answer. How right? you did it. So that there are multiple strategies that you actually want students to express, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and at the college level, we use this really early on in, in the class, and I have them read a lot of um, foundational information about why inclusive education came to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the rationale behind this? Because if we don't have a strong rationale for this practice, people will never install it or maintain right. it. So I use the question, what was one compelling rationale? for inclusive mm. education Excellent. that resonated with you um, for the installment or the development of inclusive ed. So again, multiple right answers, um, some of them opinion-based. And so what we ask is for everybody to stand up, okay? You each have a potential idea to share. Mm. And then the way you proceed and stand and deliver is that you randomly call on one person and they share their idea. Everybody else is attentively listening, and if they were also going to share that idea, they sit down. And, and then you move on to, the, to a, whoever is still standing has a different idea than what was just shared. And you progressively go through until there is no person standing. And, um, and, but what you get as an, as an instructor is you get on-the-moment assessment. So if if when the per- first person shares their answer and we have 10 people sit down, we can recognize in that exact moment that 10 people, in your case, shared the same kind of mathematical strategy. Mm-hmm. And you didn't need to speak that because your idea was already represented. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately, some of the benefits of this is that that is far your enlisting higher level thinking in students because they, and also more attentive listening. Um, I always ask, I always ask my students, have you ever asked a question in class and lots of kids raise their hand or want to participate? You call on the first person, they answer it. And then you call on the next person. They say exactly the same thing because they have not been listening to what Mm. their peer just said. Mm. And, and again, that's sort of competitive, orientations to learning. It's like, I got to get my hand up and, and, and be the first to say this. Mm-hmm. Um, but what this does is it forces the listeners to make some really critical judgments. Is that the same answer as my answer? Is my answer unique? Am I thinking about things differently or in the same way as that person who just spoke? And that will determine whether or not I stay standing or if I sit down. Um, and so I've found that people end up being much more attentive to the group's um, sharing uh, when that strategy is used. Yeah, and like even to think too about, you know, what like Alice, what if somebody changes their response and brings another compelling, like, oh, so we're going to hear another compelling reason why we should be engaging like that's okay or i'm going to hear another strategy for getting from you know uh 25 plus 16 that's okay you know like yeah, exactly. that means they were listening and they came up with another that's what i mean what 
the the level of thinking and like what you talked about before these strategies disrupt patterns and even for the teacher the teacher because usually in that that whole class environment where the student raises their hand and, they, and there's a response like the te- with a lot of times where the teacher is going to say that ire initiate respond evaluate sort of response where it's like oh what do you have to say here's my response and they'll say good and then what does that do to everyone else like oh the 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 answer has been given we can all yeah. stop thinking and hands go down versus mm-hmm. you know the disruption is oh I, i'm not just gaining one okay who's the next person to give a compelling response or who's got another strategy or who's got like in like and ask for a volunteer and, and now you're getting people to you know everyone's contributing either through their sitting down or through their offering something but then another thing is that there's scaffolding like i might not have had the words to share my thinking but i've heard a little bit about how to do that and now i might feel more capable of doing it it's like it, it's beautiful and students often feel like, oh, okay, I'm all right with not giving my answer verbally because my idea was just represented well right. by somebody else. And and as I said, this is this is really good for on the spot assessment. If I ask that question about what was a compelling uh, rationale for inclusive education that you read, and I see half the class sit down when one rationale is voiced, I can see that that was a center point of something that they read. Maybe that's something that we want to expand on or we don't need to expand on. Let's maybe expand on a lesser um, stated rationale. So it gives me information in the moment about what people know, what they find important and how they can convey it. Um, So this is what often happens though, is that people are like, um, oh, I know kids that would just sit down right away. You know, if you had them stand and, and deliver and somebody else gave an answer, they'd just sit down whether or not they, they had the answer or not. And then I always say to my students, well, what are you going to do about that? How would you, how would you change up the, your instruction? And immediately people will go, well, I, I go, can you think of the name of the student that would sit down first? And they're like, oh, yeah, that would be so-and-so. I'm like, what are you going to do? And then they go, oh, I would call on that person person first. <laughs> I'm like, absolutely. Or if a student sits down, that's an opportunity to say, oh, you had the same answer. Can you expand on that? Or, you know what, I bet I'm not sure your answer is exactly the same. Let's have you keep standing, and I'm going to call on you a bit later. So that you're actually, you know, assisting students to mm-hmm. learn at a deeper level instead of just accepting, oh, this strategy will not work for right. this and, particular student. They're not, not doing it to, but to like make sure that their thinking is honored in the classroom and like, no, 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 don't sit like that strategy is just a little bit different. I, and I want to make sure it gets highlighted. Your thinking gets highlighted and honored in this, in the, in our space. So like, no, 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 keep standing. So like, you know, even, you know, a modification, making sure they maybe write something down or like, yeah first and, and then also gives people chances to process and think a little bit as well and so yeah. I don't know and so and I was going to say that that um, one of the things that we try to do and some of the the front matter of the book joyful learning and there isn't there aren't long chapters within this mm-hmm. book but we we did try to kind of outline how can you use these strategies because the, the meat of the book is 65 different active and interactive learning strategies 
And so in the front of the book, we talk about how you might um, use these strategies uh, in combination with one another. Uh, sometimes you can use one alone and insert it into a lesson where it fits. But for instance, in the use of stand and deliver, if I, so that it doesn't feel like a cold call mm-hmm. on a student's knowledge, I might preface it by having students engage in the strategy that we call dinner party, where yeah. we say group, um, start out in a group of two people and share your ideas. Now, here's another sentence starter or another idea we want you to discuss. I will eventually ask you individually to share your thoughts on this, but group with somebody else. Listen to other people's ideas. And then we might have students go back, sit down, and jot down some thoughts. So now they're a bit more prepared for that stand and deliver um, to articulate their thinking. The other thing is that when we do something like dinner party where we have students um, gather either in person or in breakout rooms uh, virtually is that they have the opportunity to try out their ideas in a less stressful situation, a less high stakes situation. And as an instructor, I can help people then. Mm-hmm. I can bounce from group to group yes. or I can um, or I can not I, I can check into somebody's thinking and maybe help them articulate it before we come back to the larger group to do stand and deliver. So those are the perfect times to do specialized instruction. Mm-hmm. For particular students, whether or not they need language scaffolds or if they need cognitive scaffolds in order to be able to contribute in the uh, actual academic activity. And then also just by having students interacting with each other and getting to um, do things in those small groups, there's naturally some of that scaffolding is going to occur as well. You know, and you know, maybe not to the need of, of you know some students, but there's some, right? Like, and that's, you know, getting kids to, to interact with each other. They, they, they're, they're helpful beings at times. Like that. And just, and that's yes. what a good thing to do. You know, I um, often say one of our best strategies is to get out of students ways as instructors yes. where, um, I, I am not going to be a student's partner. Uh, for an activity. We should not be putting paraprofessionals into support roles where they become a student's um, academic partner, but we have to see ourselves as adults who help facilitate the academic interactions and even social interactions between students. And that, that deeply changes the orientation of what we're doing when we're providing support yeah. to kids. And that gives me like to the, the, the philosophy and I, I attribute this to you is, you know, when we would see like friend groups in classrooms and like, you know, maybe the old school thinking was like, oh, those friends, you got to get them apart. They're, also, what are they, they're just going to talk to each other. And like, well, what does that say about your classroom? Right. <laughs> that, right. You, oh, we're not going to be taught. It's just going to be, every, you know, that dumping knowledge into their heads because they're empty vessels, whatever. But no, if we're going to if we're going to interact well now a a friendship is an asset right that maybe they they know how to communicate with each other they can help others communicate with each like now we're creating these conduits for delivering content content that seems very like not very human to talk about like that but <laughs> but, but it's an asset right and these at, 
relationships are assets and then thinking about how can we develop more relationships? Wouldn't it be great that we can develop more relationships in our classrooms and then providing these places where, yes, we're talking about content and thinking about the stuff, but also too, there is that social interaction as well, which is about being a kid, a growing adolescent is like learning how to interact with each other. And, and you were doing that as well. And it's, it's, I don't know, Alice, it's like this holistic way of, of thinking about, you know, well, the whole kid and like what better time than right now than we need to think about not just the academic, but the, you know, all the different well-beings of, of a child, you know. Absolutely. And something that you said um, made me think, oh, that one of the things about that we made um, as a concerted effort in, in this book and in outlining these strategies is that we wanted them, um, we wanted this book to be a working desk reference for teachers. That mm. as you're planning any unit of instruction and its associated lessons, that you might pull something of this out. It's like, okay, I'm going to be reviewing some, I'm going to be reviewing in this lesson, or I really want students to interact around this academic content, or I know I need to do some team building at the start of this unit. Yeah. That the chapters are set up to lead you to certain activities that would um, that would nicely align with those intentions. But the other thing that each strategy does is it gives you a protocol for interaction. And you know, when and when I say protocol, I mean simply a step-by-step process that you follow as a teacher and that students follow. So one of the downfalls of collaborative group work uh, that students have experienced is that it has been unstructured group work. Mm -hmm. And uh, we put kids together, we give them a difficult academic task and essentially say, do it as a small group. And then whatever happens, happens. And typically what does happen is certain people emerge as leaders or as the, the people who, um, can convey their their ideas and information most effectively, and then ultimately there might be a uh, an imbalance of work that's done or understanding of what comes out of that student work together. And these strategies actually give guidelines for what is the process for interaction here? What are the steps that we do? And what are the roles or actions that each student engages in? So that it's clear to the students that they have a process that they can follow um, so that it isn't that loosely guided. I mean, there are times when we want students to function without um, strict guidelines or protocols uh, where we want just discovery learning happening and observing that, but these give um, methods for both the teacher and the student to move from one place in interacting with the curriculum to an end point of what we hope is some uh, greater understanding. Yeah. Well, and, and also too, it's, it's comfortable. I mean, I, at least it feels comfortable when you're in this you know, possibly different kind of learning experience that you kind of know what the rules are. <laughs> like, hey, here's what we're going to do. And this, right. here's what stand and deliver looks like. Here's what dinner party looks like. Here's what a gallery walk looks like. You know, these sorts of things that we're going to be doing. Like, here's the, the order of operations. And so 
And then if also too, if you know what those things are and if you need to make modifications, which also is contained in the book, like some sample modifications for what might happen, like you know where those are going to be versus a very loose kind of understanding of what it is. It's, it's again, very helpful uh, to have those. Right. And, and, and that um, the modifications or what we would consider a, consider um, ways to maximize participation uh, for Love students yes. and further ways to differentiate um, a strategy because n- none of these strategies in and of themselves are panaceas for a student's engagement and, and understanding. You're likely going to have to consider other kinds of changes. Might I have to change the materials? Might I have to figure out how the student can use their augmentative communication device to to communicate in stand and deliver, right? Mm-hmm. We've got to consider those students' right. characteristics up front in the use of any of these strategies. But we have tried to generate ideas as to how this how the strategy could be used at say, uh, high school level, and we gave real examples from our own and teachers' experiences, uh, how we might consider um, maximizing the participation of a student who is emergent bilingual and where we would emphasize academic, the use of academic language Mm -hmm. um, to say. Uh, So to me, those are other points of differentiation. The use of active and collaborative strategies are differentiation in and of their own right. They're, they, they're changing up the process by which we engage in learning. But we also have to think about other things. Maybe within Stand and Deliver, uh, a student has a communication goal that we are incorporating, and that becomes paramount in the activity versus some other aspect of their participation. Yeah. No, it- yeah, it opens up all sorts of, yeah, like opportunities. If I know what my, uh, the goals of my students are with different levels of, um, uh, that are experiencing the, the, the strategy from different perspectives, like I can keep those, I'm, I'm creating opportunities for them to reach their goals, which is, which is awesome. Like that's, that's what we want, right? Versus we're doing the same thing over and over again. And it's, you know, and going back to that whole class discussion where the same students are the only ones experiencing um, interaction or success, like, and even being interpreted by the teacher, like those are the students that are able, well, we've only created one opportunity or one way for students to show competence versus this book provides many opportunities and all sorts of, and like, I love what you said, not just modifications, but ways to maximize engagement. Like that's, there you go. That's, (laughs) that's a good way to put it. So let's let's talk a little bit, and um, I have a feeling this uh, this could go for four hours, uh, but this is this is good. Um, so I might cruise through some of these. But what learnings did you have? Like we always we like to talk about when we bring books, uh, when we talk about books on the podcast, is think about some learnings. And you have been an author, and then going through the second edition, um, what learnings might you have had from uh, writing this book? Yeah. Okay. So. Um... So I felt, and as did my um, uh, co-author, Paula Kluth, and actually before I answer that, I do want to also give the second origin story of the oh, book yeah, yeah. Um, oh. to really give kudos to my co-author, Paula Kluth. Um, she was really the person that kick-started uh, the actual writing and publication of the book. Mm. So Paula uh, was also doing her doctorate at UW-Wisconsin, 
and acted as a teaching assistant with me during that doctoral program. And we taught the class strategies for inclusive schooling together, as well as shared, um, you know, uh, our expertise in consulting around students with um, more significant disabilities. And while we were teaching together, I used these strategies in my college class as methods of differentiation toward inclusive ed. And she kept saying, Alice, you got to write this down. <laughs> um, Alice, you got to get this into a book. Um, you, you just need to do it because I haven't seen um, something else out there like this. And so after she graduated, she became a prolific scholar and consultant in the field in her own right and really continued this work. Um, and she continued to dog me to get it on paper. And so uh, finally, we just said, let's do it. And uh, I have to say that writing this book on joyful learning was one of the most joyful experiences that go. I've had in collaborating with somebody because we were writing about what we loved about and what we loved in our own practice and um, really continued to be able to be creative with one another to move it from concept to an end product. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and anyone that's had your classes has experienced these, uh, these strategies, like, yes, that, yeah. So yeah. Kudos to Paula for <laughs> keep, uh, keep pestering like yes. <laughs> that yeah. warm demander. Um, <laughs> so. So, so now back to some learnings. Yeah. Okay. So uh, one of the things that I felt really strongly about in, in documenting this work is that I also wanted to assure that, the, that uh, there was a foundation in research and literature for the use of active and collaborative learning. And, um, and so part of it, and some of the front matter of the book uh, addresses this, and I hope in an interesting way, is that active and collaborative learning have a really strong research base, mm -hmm. and that the origins of those practices and the research actually resides in higher education, and that the techniques of active and collaborative learning uh, are founded on really strong theoretical educational principles. And I felt it really important to, to talk about those and document those because one of, the, one of the common reactions of some teachers in practice is this takes away from, you know, assuring students get the content that they need. Or this takes away from um, the, the time I have to prepare them for the standardized test, mm. right? Um, uh, engaging in these things takes too much instructional time to design. Um, I'm not sure that the outcomes of working with other students is going to be that beneficial when, you know, the endpoint is a high stakes test, right? And so for me, a key learning in this is that there is data and there is research showing the benefits of active and collaborative learning and the need for it at, in higher education as well, so that we are actually preparing students at, in the elementary and secondary areas for the real active and collaborative work that's expected at the college level. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a tremendous movement in teaching and learning 
at the um, higher ed level to, again, disrupt some of those traditional approaches to learning. And it really, the source of that came from the STEM fields. They recognized that by teaching students in these sort of prosaic traditional lecture formats, that they were not gaining the skills they needed to be creative collaborators in their professions as engineers, people in medicine, Mm -hmm. mathematicians who work together. And so um, to me, in investigating that research was like, this is this is a great aha that that there is there's a shift in thinking in higher education too, which justifies our use and and should be daily use mm-hmm. of these strategies in students' earlier education. Awesome. Well, and and I had I mean, like that's the the cool thing that I see is like all these connections to some of these other like complex instruction or um, even like we had uh, um, Mandy Jansen coming here and talking about rough draft math, where thinking about this idea of rough drafts bringing into the math classroom. And she talks about this idea of, you know, uh, participation, uh, like being participate or no, not. Yeah. Participation, not performance. Right. And so thinking about how do we get more engagement and, and like seeing the value of that and like people are responding like and that's where the, like it, it's seeing these connections to what you're doing within the book and like a, you're providing the vehicles for which that can occur. And so like all this reinforcement of things, even like with complex instruction and talking about having an asset based perspective of thing people and like, well, then you go into joyful learning, you look at group resume. As like, oh, there's a way that we can come up with, well, what are the assets for our group? Like, what, do, what are the smartnesses? What are people bringing to the group? And how can we leverage them uh, to uh, best, you know, do this task or best uh, even just even to get to know each other, too, at the same time? Um, yeah. I, I did. The one thing that I learned, uh, one thing that I learned from this, too, is, you know, you're never saying like they, these this is the strategy and this is it needs to be done this way with fidelity at all times. But it's like it's like the spark. You know, it's like you're providing this, like, here's this structure and then here's the ways that it's been. And then it's like, oh, well, how can I see how to do this in my classroom with my students? And it's like you've already provided all of this sort of ways that I can think about it, the protocols that you talked about before. But now it becomes a way to um, it's almost like a way of thinking. Right. You're, you're pro- almost promoting a way of thinking about this. And I don't was, was that kind of the goal too? Like, yes, you provided over 60 strategies, but it's like more than anything, you're like, here's a way of thinking about doing this sort of teaching. Yeah, absolutely. And when you, when you actually look at these strategies and their, you know, their basic structure is that they're content free, mm-hmm. you know, they aren't set up. So it's like, this is exactly how you're going to teach fractions <laughs> or this is exactly how you're going to teach you know, narrative writing. But instead, these are frameworks for thinking about how you're going to convey information, how students are going to interact with that information, and then how they're going to interact with each other around that information, and then perhaps how they're going to, you know, provide some sort of product of their understanding. And that means we can lift these up, these strategies up, and say, Oh, I am teaching fractions. Which one of these, which one of these strategies might um, help me in this process? So, again, as you said, it's kind of the spark 
to think about what might I change up here, but how does this strategy serve my purpose mm-hmm. instructionally? Yeah. And we did that very intentionally, although we do provide multiple examples, and, yeah. and that's, that's why we wanted to not just say, oh, here's an English example, right, but right. instead here is uh, how somebody used this in a social studies context. Here's somebody how they used it in um, an early childhood setting. And what's cool, those are, you've observed them or you've talked to them. Like, like, it's not like you're making them up, you know, it's like, it's, that's pretty, it's cool when you have books and we have another book behind me, this reimagining the mathematic classroom with Catherine, mm-hmm. yay, Mark Ellis and Carly Hurtado. They, I mean, it's immersed in teacher experience and it's like, you can, that's, you get that out of this book as well. Um, right. I I want to say like an example of that. And, oh, awesome. And so we we actually said that, or as I said, that these structures are content free, but that they can be applied to, I'm not going to say every content area, but many, mm-hmm. many, um, many content areas, many different disciplines. Um, and they're also age free. Mm-hmm. So we can ratchet them up in complexity for students at the secondary level. And again, I use all of these strategies at the college level. Mm-hmm. And then we can reduce the, the abstraction, make them more concrete for younger age groups yeah. and kind of ratchet them down. Um, and an example of that is um, uh, a strategy that Paula um, wrote up in the book, and she highlights uh, a chemistry teacher that she worked with in Illinois. And the strategy is A is for acids, B is for bases, and and essentially it's creating ABC books, like you did in preschool. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. A is for apple, B is for boy. Yeah. Um, although I might not say B is for boy anymore. Um, yeah. <laughs> C is for cat, and then students investigate that that word or that concept that has to, that starts with that letter. And we think, well, we thought, well, why are we abandoning that at the preschool level? But are there applications uh, where we can learn uh, about different concepts that are related, say, to a unit of study? And so this chemistry teacher actually took the idea, and he initially made it as an extra credit project, but then I think he built it into his curriculum as a, um, a product that students could produce at the end of a unit about acids and bases in, in chemistry. And students could work alone or in groups, and they had to create, say, a PowerPoint presentation where they picked a concept from the unit that started with A. They had to have a definition. They had to have pictures. They had mm-hmm. to have the way it was applied. Maybe they had to have misunderstandings about it. And they created an alphabet book around awesome. that chemistry concept. And students actually used it and exchanged their work with each other for studying for the exam. And it was, again, a more creative and unique way for students to um, explore areas of interest, but then also to document their understandings. Nice. Do you have any other learnings from? Other learnings? Um, Well, kind of two of them. Uh, two others, and I've already mentioned this, but to me, I really want people to, to get this takeaway, is that active and collaborative learning are really powerful 
and yeah. necessary elements of universally designed curriculum, instruction, and assessment. And oftentimes, teachers are inundated with all these these words and concepts like what is UDL now and how does that differ from differentiation and what is active and collaborative learning and how does it relate to those two concepts? To me, they, they are integrated and they should be viewed as integrated concepts and that active and collaborative learning actually address three of the major pillars of universal design for learning or UDL, which are, which is to create multiple means of action, multiple means of expression, and multiple means of engagement, which are three of the four pillars of of universal design. The fourth is multiple means of representation. And what we do also encourage in the book is like, you're gonna be using uh, the strategy, A is for acids, B is for bases, or the ABC books, You are going to have to think about multiple means of representation as to how students also engage with this. What are your materials looking like? How are they individualized for students? So again, to me, these can be some important vehicles for really pushing thinking about UDL and how we're going to differentiate for particular students. Yeah. They're the catalyst in the sense. Yeah, yeah. Any. Anything else that you wanted to add? Yeah, another the 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 I had several, but this one is important to me. Is that we need to not consider that teachers own these strategies, but mm-hmm. that we actually have to put the strategies into the hands of our students. Mm-hmm. Yes, that um, that we might teach and model some of these processes to begin with and but we need to encourage agency in our students even young kids can make decisions about how they want to learn something once they have experienced it you know for a first time so having them choose lead facilitate the approaches that are in a given lesson and to me that's what we want to produce in our adult learners, people who are creative thinkers about their own learning. That it's not like I'm, I'm doing stand and deliver to you, but let's decide. We're going to have a discussion about this. Which strategy would you like to use? And then have a student lead it. There's no reason why I have to be the one facilitating that. Even young ones could, could facilitate stand and deliver. That is, I mean, that's so great. I mean, I mean, just like taking that to the next level, like, you know, all of a sudden they, this might be a little dated now, but like a kid comes up and like, hey, can I, can I lead this? But can we do dab and deliver? Like what is <laughs> everyone has the same response. I've right? got a bunch of people dabbing in the, in, you know, like, and showing that they're, uh, that they have the same response and like, and, and, and what does that allow you to do as the teacher? That frees you up to go have interactions that specific, you know, like if a student might need some additional assistance or checking to see what their reactions are or encouraging that student that wrote something down that maybe thinks that theirs is the same, like, no, 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 this is really important. And this is different than what they just said. You need to stand up and stay there and, and don't dab just yet. <laughs> you know, like, right. How amazing would that be? You know, I love it. And, and the other thing too is, there are some strategies in this book that Paula would feel really 
comfortable implementing. Like mm-hmm. she wrote up chants and rants, and I contributed some ideas to that. Um, like, you know, pulling in song lyrics as, you know, transitions. And I know you would feel comfortable with that, Joel, because yeah. you used to have a guitar in your classroom and <laughs> yeah. you used to use it in transitions, right? Yeah. And I put an idea in here that, you know, as a, a classroom management strategy that you would, you know, rewrite the words to the, to the song respect mm-hmm. and then do like choral, you know, kind of call, um, and respond with that. That does not fit my teaching style. And, I consider myself a poor singer. And so I am not going, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm less likely to put myself out there using that strategy. But you know what? I've had students in my classroom who would be marvelous at that. Yeah. Oh. Why am I not enlisting them to be the voice of this strategy? Um, and, and it also acknowledges the expertise that students can bring to a situation. Yeah. And essentially function in the moment as say a viable co-teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, so elevating a, a student's um, position in the classroom as somebody who has uh, important expertise to share. Yeah. And like, I mean, you just that just bring that like that guitar hanging up in my head. Like it was something I paid way too much for in Tijuana when the Badgers <laughs> went went to the Rose Bowl. And, uh, <laughs> I never knew the, the, yeah. the source of that. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a, it was a source of embarrassment. So I loved hanging it up and just being like, remember, don't you know, like <laughs> manage your money. But anyway, that that be, guitar became a, such a great connector to a student that you know had the opportunity to. Um, experienced my classroom a few times um because of lack of success but we finally got him through but like that guitar was a source of enjoyment like he enjoyed my class because he knew if you know he was doing well he got to use that guitar and then thinking about like now i'm thinking about the opportunities i might have missed to be more to more incorporate that asset into our learning experiences and so like i guess that's something is like there's you know when i'm learning too is there's always there's always more, not to, not from a, like, always more like I, I didn't do as good a job, you know, I could have done better, you know, like the end of Schindler's List when he's holding on to the pen, you know, like, oh, I could have done, like, not from a, like, there's, I, I have, I still have more to grow. I can more to grow. And the beauty of all the, the interaction or the, all the, the teacher knowledge that's in here and like that I, I'm learning that I I, there's so much more I can learn from my peers, my colleagues that are doing that. What are they doing? That's, and, and how can I, you know, document, use it? Like, you know, I, there's some blank pages in the back, right? I can put some, some more stuff in there, you know, that I can, there's learning to happen with other teachers I need to be collaborating with. I think that's a yeah, great. And I, and I really feel like, you know, I mean, this is terrible. Like when you write something, I'm like, I pick this up and I'm like, Oh, that's, that's a good idea. I'm like, oh, I wrote that. <laughs> and where I, you know, I'm in a new situation right. with a new group of students. Makes sense. I'm interacting now with teachers and trying to be a line of support and uh, creative problem solving in this new virtual remote realm yeah. or even concurrent teaching that's happening. And I look very differently at these strategies now. I'm, I'm thinking, how do I translate that mm-hmm. to a virtual realm? Will it work? Will it won't? Uh, will, will it not? And, and so uh, each time a new sort of teaching scenario happens, 
these are not that they're all new to me, but I see new and different applications based upon the co-teachers that I'm working with mm-hmm. and based upon the makeup of their classroom. Nice. Um, I guess, and I'm going to throw you one that's uh, not on the list, but just uh, again, from time perspective, but I think this is a good question that probably needs, what, if someone just, so this is going to get some attention. We're going to put links in the show notes for people to access the book. If someone got the book, like what recommendations would you have for them to dive in? If it's a, an, an educator, that's like I, the stuff that I'm hearing rings true with me. I want to get into it. What would you suggest? Okay, that's that's a great question. And to Thank tell you. you the truth, I would honestly first have them open the book to any page mm. in the, the meat of the book yeah, yeah. Um, to a strategy. And, and the way the strategies are set up is that we have just a quick, quick blurb about the nature of the strategy directions as to how to engage in it. We have some implementation tips, um, and then we have examples in practice, and then we end with methods to maximize engagement and participation where we maybe highlight students with very unique learning needs and how we might have used different technologies or, um, or varied materials for them to participate to a mm-hmm. greater degree. And I would suggest looking at one of those strategies and then thinking about your next day's teaching. Mm. And is this something I could insert in here? Could I do a variation? Um, what student do I know who might struggle with this? And, and as I'm thinking about their participation in this, what am I, how does that impact how I might teach tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, I think that the, the book make, makes most sense if you can immediately dive into what the strategies are. And then I would go back and read the front matter. I mean, yeah. not, not that it's not important because I, we spent a lot of time on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, but uh, and, you know, as to, you know, how, how you might use the book or how the book is set up and that kind of thing. But to me, again, it's the um, it's the opportunity to catalyze your teaching, sort of, you know, shake things up, but also in a reasonable way. As you're looking at these at the strategies and you were say you were to open a book, open the book and pick something to to first view we're not telling you you have to change everything about your teaching mm. in order to be a more inclusive teacher. Yeah. We're not saying throw it all out and start from scratch because that is daunting. Right. And that is impossible at this point in time, particularly during the pandemic. We have to build off of what we, what we currently have. We have to build off of what feels safe and doable. Mm. And this allows you to take, smaller incremental steps in change. Yeah. So generally that would be my recommendation. Well, and so then, um, and I'm going to skip down to like the critical part. Mm-hmm. So maybe also, I mean, that was kind of like a, a caution, you know, the, Hey, don't throw everything out. Right. But any right. other things like being maybe a critical perspective of the book or any other things that you'd be like, Hey, 
just keep this in mind as well as you're uh, talking about this stuff? Um, So a, a critical point now that I have hindsight mm-hmm. um, as one of the authors is that from the beginning, we intended this book to be relevant to PK 12 settings and beyond mm-hmm. to adult learning um, and reflect real techniques that, that teachers were using. However, when I, we looked back at the elementary, uh, when we looked back at the first edition of the book, it was much more heavily weighted with elementary examples. Mm-hmm. And I think it was just the nature of yeah. teachers we were working with at the time, et cetera, um, and pre-service orientations uh, where we both um, were, were working. And so the second edition, we really did make a conscious effort to provide many more secondary applications. Um, and the other, the other, but, but it's not comprehensive, you know, I mean, not everybody's going to open it up and say, that's my situation. And, um, and sometimes when I have done, uh, professional development in, in any given school, but if I'm in, if I'm in a secondary setting, oftentimes people will like, if you give an elementary example, it's like, Oh, it's not my business. Right. right. I'm going to shut it down. And similarly, at an elementary area, if I give a high school example, people were like, well, that's too difficult for my kids. Uh, uh, you know, um, tell me when you're ready to talk about my exact situation. And so no book can really do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm I'm hoping is that people will uh, view it with a very open mind and a creative lens is that these are templates. Um, for you. Um, They are canvases in a sense for you to, you know, paint your own pictures with the, the, the students and um, both affordances and limitations that you have in your own setting and not everything will work. Mm. Yeah. Or you're going to try it and you're going to say, I hated that. (laughs) And, and, but I would encourage people to not necessarily judge the practice after one trial. Um, and that's why in the book, we, after every strategy, we've got um, some pages for you to literally write in the book. We want this to be a desk, desk reference. Yeah. What worked? What didn't work? What students emerged as um, either being very successful at this or struggled? So that this can be, I, I, I look at any teaching event as an opportunity for assessment, Um, assessing my own teaching and delivery of instruction, as well as what my students are getting out of it. And so my hope would be that people would, would go into it with that kind of lens and creative spirit, but, you know, honestly, so it, it's not going to represent everybody's uh, learning needs. Well, even just you know, I was then that exact last thing, like don't abandon after one thing. It's like you're laying track, and like you know, now that we're if, if we've done stand and deliver, we can do it again next time. And it's not like what do I sit down now? Like like you know, there's confusion in the beginning part of it, um, but then also too is even to re- in the reflection think about well, how is this compared to the alternative? Right? Like maybe it didn't go perfect, Point. but think about I had twice as much engagement using this than I would have if I just 
ask two questions and three people ask what, you know, like I, three people answer, like I would have still, still, it was better than that. All right. So how do I make this better? So it feels better to me. It felt like it runs more smoothly, but yeah, I, I, I love that. Um, I've, I've got the challenging one now for you, Alice. You ready? Okay. Uh-oh. The sum in seven. I don't know if you thought about Oh, you asked me less. to try to sum up the book in seven words or less. Seven and words or less. You know, I, I was one. up till like one o'clock last night trying to do <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is really challenging. Um, so I have two versions. Okay, excellent. Neither of which I really like that much. But uh, okay, so here's the first one. Get up. Engage. Inspire. Be joyfully inclusive. Nice. Okay. All right. Um, and the second one sounds more like a sentence. Um, create more inclusive, engaged, inspired, joyful classrooms. Very good. There you go. Excellent. <laughs> I got one. And I don't know. I, I was wondering how you... Okay, would, I'm going to write it down. Hang on. I, don't, I wonder if you would like it. But so I think about this as uh, like a, you said, like a desk reference. So I was thinking desk reference. What, how might people think about that? The joy of cooking for inclusive teaching. Oh, I love it. I I, I was wondering, because like, I don't want to think of like, it's that there's, it's like, I've got recipes, but now that those recipes could inspire me to much more, uh, it, it you know, many meals to have in my class, many of the, in, in quotation marks. So like. I yeah. love the metaphor. There you go. I'm trying. <laughs> Making me a little hungry. There you go. Yeah, it is. It is around lunchtime. <laughs> but um, one one final thing, and I I can't let a an experienced teacher like you leave without asking this one question because like you know we're all you know trying to figure out how to do this thing better, and, and this the podcast is all about teaching better. What is what is the best thing you do, Alice, in to help you in your teaching? If you were to have asked me as a first-year teacher, mm-hmm. it would have been um, very different from from what I'm going to say now. As a first-year teacher, what I did was to plan excessively <laughs> and to write everything down that I was going to do because it was my way of organizing my thinking and assuring that I had thought through every detail. This is not surprising, but uh, go yeah. <laughs> yeah. my 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 little problem with control, right? Um, <laughs> after you've worked with me, you experience that firsthand. Um, but now I would I would completely I would say something completely different, and and I do recognize that this comes with experience Mm -hmm. is um, the best thing I do in my teaching is I take risks Mm. and I recognize that the content of this book pushed me to take risks and will require others to probably take risks in their own teaching. Um, But I wrote this little quote um, and I just found it, it and I put it at the end of some chapter that I had written about Um, engaging in inclusive practice and differentiation. And um, it was one of those ones where I looked at it again. I'm like, Ooh, that's good. Who wrote that? (laughs) I realized I did. Um, (laughs) But it, it involves risk taking. And so um, the, the quote is 
Changing or refining our practices feels risky and uncomfortable. However, it is in this state of temporary imbalance when the most creative solutions are generated. Mm. And I just remember as I progressed through early years of teaching at the university, and my classes initially were like 200 and 250 people, mm-hmm. um, where I tried to you know, employ these strategies. I refused to teach then in traditional ways. But it was really scary, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't know, you know, what kinds of responses I was going to get from students. And I remember feeling in that state of imbalance. It's like, ooh, this doesn't feel good, you know, almost like, you know, you're you're at the wrong elevation and you're getting lightheadedness. And and then I realized that that's when I was the most open mm-hmm. to. Um, to doing things differently, um, taking things as they came, being mindful in the moment about what was happening, instead of being trying to control every single event and every single student response, um, and see what solutions and, and creativity came out of that moment. Um, so I'm more readily able to do that now as um, a more practiced teacher. But I would encourage people to stand at the edge where you feel um, like you're comfortable Mm -hmm. and just take that next risk. Um, And and for me, the outcomes have been beneficial. Well, and I'm going to point right back at you with, you know, I I think about my, my own classes, like, you know, taught here at the university of Mississippi. Now this will be, I think this is the end of my ninth year. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and the, you know, number I've taught many classes over and over again. I remember it's like, it, and it feels like every time, like reinventing, like what we're doing, even though there's similar things, but trying to like think about, and I, I point back to you and, and like how many times you, you taught the courses that I would help you with and thinking about, you know, everything. And, and maybe in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, we did it before. Like, why don't we do it similar? But it was like, no, that, that there's new, there's, it's a new context. There's new students and thinking about all those. Sort of, and I got that from you where it's like, how do we best meet the needs of who we're, is in the classroom and like what we're trying to teach? Cause that's also like, we're, we're learning more here too. There's all these sorts of things going on and to keep taking risk. And even like in the course of a class and thinking like, oh, this seemed to work well, or this didn't. And now how do we adjust off of that? And just seeing that and seeing what you, um, led me to that. Um, and I'm, I think I'm a, I'm a risk taker because of, and trying, I think you are too. Trying, keep trying things, you know? So I, I appreciate that. And, uh, and I, and I think that, you know, like having the, uh, the joyful learning is like, maybe give someone like a little, like, okay, I, the ledge, I'm at the ledge, but like, I'm just not so scared to take this little jump. You know, this, this, that's not right. too bad. Like I can, I'm going to try that. Like, like you said, open it up, find something like oh, I can do that. Like now we're starting to move forward. And so helping those uh, take some of those risks, I think it's, that's good. That's excellent. So, um, anything, um, anything else besides where, again, we're going to put a link to the book, uh, in so people can have access to that. Cause I think as many, if, if as many books have been getting teachers hands and on desks, I think that's going to be a great thing, uh, for everyone, but also, uh, anything else to promote anything? I don't know. 
Well, are you going to be on any uh, late night talk shows or anything? Like that? <laughs> I'm not going to. <laughs> um, I wish. Uh, I, I just around the use of this book um, in terms of promotion, we do, you know, give an example as to how administrators can use this mm. also in their own um, delivery of professional development to their their own teachers. How you might even use it in the staff meeting, um, but. Oh. I've had some of my best experiences where uh, schools have adopted the book or even a team has adopted a book or a grade level has adopted a book, uh, adopted the book. And then we've done some kind of book club where I facilitate that. And we uh, create a safe environment where people can do just what we were talking about. It's like, let's everybody try one of their chosen, you know, self-selected strategies and we'll come back and talk about how it went, how it didn't go, learn from each other's experiences. And, um, and then in some settings, districts have hired me to actually support and coach and be present um, in the same room uh, as their teachers to, to try, try new practices out. Uh, and in terms of uh, administrators who really want to uh, assist their staff to engage in greater universal design and differentiation. Sometimes this book and the content in it can be the entree to, to, to greater change, mm. but a more doable way to begin change for teachers uh, under the stressful times that we are, um, that we're working in now and, and typically work in. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking of like, even, you know, as districts are seeing like, you know what, we need, there's a movement uh, in where they're seeing like, we have some restrictive environments, we need to create least restrictive, like, like, how do we do this sort of thing? And like, you're saying that there's answers out there, like we can look here, we can look to you, we there's, there's answers out there to help them. Well, take those sorts of risks too. Take those and but but doing the what they need to do, uh, what they're what they're called to do in their their schools or their districts or whatever. So yes, absolutely. And sometimes you know using common strategies between general and special educators, mm -hmm. or general educators and specialists in other areas, like bilingual mm -hmm. resource teachers, mm -hmm. um, can use this just as readily as um, as a special educator is that it brings people to the same page using the same language and problem solving about the same curriculum and the same students. So, um, so in a sense, it facilitates that co-design and co-delivery of instruction, which is so essential um, to creating inclusive environments. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alice. This was a great conversation and I just oh, appreciate your time. Uh, I know I took way more time than I said I would, but I, I greatly appreciate it. I know the listeners do too. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's uh, to overuse the term. It's been a joy <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> to not only see and, and, and talk with you again, but to be able to talk about this, uh, which remains my passion. Awesome. Thank you, Alice. Thanks. There it is. It's a long conversation, but a good one. Uh, and that's what's cool about podcasts. You can make them as long as you want. And I love that conversation. It would, it, uh, and 
I miss having those conversations with Allison. Hopefully we can have her on again because I think she's got, has a lot to offer. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this podcast. And like I mentioned before, it's to capture the stuff that I have gained a lot from, you know, these conversations with teachers like Alice or like Joe uh, from the last episode or just even stuff from the books I've read. And, and I would just want to share it. And that's what the podcast is for. So if there's at least one person out there that gains value from this uh this episode is great. And I know that there's a, a many of you out there who are listening. So we greatly appreciate it. If you're looking for ways to support the podcast, you can do a bunch of things, subscribe, rate and review to the podcast. Uh, you know, wherever you get your podcast, do that. You can subscribe to the Amazon planet download, which contains teaching resources and updates from Amazon planet. That's a periodic email that goes out. You can go to amadonplanet.com. There's a bunch of places where you can hit, join the email list and get access to that. Um, the Amazon planet download, which, Again, happens periodically, about every two weeks now. You can follow at Amadon Planet on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or like the Amadon Planet Facebook page. Uh, we're thinking about doing another uh, No Guilt book club uh, coming up in the next few months. So if you want to get access to that, the Facebook page is also a good place to be notified of that sort of thing. Or, again, access the Amadon Planet download. Um, check out the Amadon Planet store or Amadon Planet bookshop. Links are in the footer at amadonplanet.com where your purchases support the production costs of the podcast. We greatly appreciate that. So thank you again for listening to this episode of the Amadon Planet podcast. Thank you to Alice for sharing her expertise and uh, for writing a book. We always are thankful for our authors for sharing their expertise in a book as well. Thanks to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. And also Matt's got a new song out there. Check it out on Spotify. Um, you can and listen to previous episodes where we talked to Matt about his music, but hopefully we can have him on again in the near future. Shout out to you, Matt. And finally, thank you to all of you out there who are seeking to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you have been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace.